Um, when you came in, you should have found a card around you in one of the seats that you're seated in. Uh, if you're interested in some information about Redeemer, we'd love to send that to you. If you fill out one of those cards and drop it at the box at the kiosk in the back of the room, we'll connect with you later this week. There's also a place to submit that same information online on the homepage of our website. You can also submit prayer requests if there are things we can pray with you or for you about. It would be our honor to do that. Uh, so if you have any of those, drop them in the box. Or if you're online, you can go on the homepage, RedeemerRC.com, and find that same information and submit it there as well. But Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning, taking a look at verses 4 to 17. Uh, they'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. If you don't have a copy in front of you, I would encourage you to follow along there. Otherwise, turn in your Bibles there and follow along with us. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 down through verse 17. We read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens, earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is one that flowed around the whole land of Havalah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of, this, of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's word. July 4th, every year, our nation celebrates its independence. Uh, and there are many people in our particular community who celebrate in a variety of ways, right? And so uh, we put on our best Chuck Norris outfit, um, and we apostrophize uh, the A off of the front of America and just say America, right? Uh, we got fireworks shows, and we got cookouts, and we got all kinds of flags flying all across the community. It's a wonderful celebration of our nation's independence every single year, right? So Harry Myers, the city of Rockwall, puts on a great fireworks show. There's fireworks non-HOA neighborhood that you can possibly imagine. There's fireworks going off all over the place as we celebrate our nation's independence. And while our freedom is something that we celebrate and is a good thing to celebrate nationally, uh, we are also a people who love autonomy as Americans, we love self-reliance as Americans, and we love rampant individualism as Americans. And while our freedom is a great thing to celebrate nationally, that autonomy, that self-reliance, and that individualism is something that we ought to grieve spiritually. See, when it comes 
to being wise in our own eyes, which is what autonomy, spiritual autonomy is, spiritual self-reliance is, spiritual individualism is, being wise in our own eyes, we ought to grieve that. When it comes to existing as living creatures made in the image of God, who possess the breath of life from the very lungs of God himself as he breathes it into our first parents. Independence, autonomy, and self-reliance are deadly. They are deadly. In Genesis chapter 2, we come to find not, not a new description of creation, but a different one. In Genesis chapter 1, we read a poetic description of God making all things from nothing, speaking into existence things that were not, filling and for, forming, forming and filling the earth over the course of six days of creation, and then, and then creating man in his own image. Right? It's a very poetic, metered style of literature. And yet when we turn to Genesis chapter 2, we're reading about the same thing, more in a prose type of literature, more in a story or a narrative, particularly as it zooms in on that sixth day of creation as God forms the man from the dust of the ground. And one of the things that we learned from Genesis chapter 2 that I want us to key in on this morning is that we were not made to live independent from God, but dependent on God. And so why, where do we see that in Genesis 2? And what does Genesis 2 teach us about living in dependence upon our Creator? Okay, that's where we want to go this morning. And the first thing I want us to see from the text is this, is that if we're going to live in dependence upon God, church, we've got to believe that He is dependable. That he is a God whose character is revealed through his actions. And we see that he is indeed one who is dependable. In chapter 2, verse 4, there's an interesting shift. There's a change in the name that Moses uses to refer to God. That for us, for you and I, oftentimes we might see it as a very subtle change. But for the original audience, in the original language, it would have been a very significant shift. As Moses uses a different name now for God. See, up to this point in the narrative, the name for God is the Hebrew word Elohim. The word Elohim is generally translated God, okay? Capital G-O-D. And it's the perfect name for referring to God as the majestic creator, as the one who has formed the universe, who is all-powerful, sovereign, and supreme. And Moses uses that name, Elohim, God. He uses it some 35 times from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. 35 times. Now, 35 is a multiple of, of 7. That's 5 times 7. And 7 in the Old Testament was the number of perfection. So Moses is using this word in a very, very theologically significant way to say, indeed, here is Elohim, God, the creator, supreme and sovereign, who has brought into existence a perfect creation because he is the perfect creator. All the way through Genesis 1 and the first three verses of Genesis 2. And yet in verse 4, following all the, all the, 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 the name shifts from just Elohim to Yahweh Elohim. Or as most of our English translations are going to render it, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord God. 
See, writing after the Lord God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush with his personal covenant name, Moses takes the personal covenant name of God and applies it to the creator of the universe. And to distinguish this God from all the other gods, to, to make sure that they knew exactly who he was talking about, our covenant creator, the one who not only made us, but also the one who rescued us. Now, you, you're like, where are you getting this from? You have to remember that the, first, that, that the book of Genesis, and particularly these first several chapters of Genesis, they were not written to Adam. They were not written to Eve. They were not written to Seth or to Cain or to Abel. They were not written to Abram or Abraham. They were not written to Jacob or Isaac. They were not written to the patriarchs. They were written to the people of Israel as God had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so they, Moses is looking back upon all that God had done that had been passed down orally up to this point. And Moses is recording all of this for the people of his generation as they go into the land of promise. And so Moses is saying to the people of his generation, the God who made us is the same God who rescued us. And the God who rescued us is the same God who made us. He's our covenant creator. The personal name of God, Yahweh Elohim. So he's no longer talking about God in the generic, general, or abstract terms, but about a personal God in specific, clear, and concrete terms that had revealed himself to Moses at the bush. Now, it's worth noting that the only place in Genesis chapters 2 to 4 where this name is not used Yahweh Elohim, the only place it doesn't show up is in the dialogue between the serpent and the woman. This is the only place it doesn't show up. It seems that Moses, when he writes about the tempter and our first parents falling into sin, he intentionally avoids using the personal covenant name of God. And the reason, I believe, the reason for this is likely... It's likely this reason, because in the minds of Satan and the woman, as she experienced the temptation, the God who put the one tree out of bounds, the one tree out of bounds, was, as Gordon Winham, one of the foremost scholars on the book of Genesis, suggests that in their minds, that this God was malevolent, secret, and concerned to restrict man. His character is so different Winham says, from that of Yahweh Elohim, that the narrative pointedly avoids the name in the dialogue. That he's malevolent, restri- that, he's, that he's cruel, that he's secretive. And his only desire is to restrict man. And yet, church, I want you to see from Genesis 2 that the actions of God in the story, they not only drive the story forward, But listen, they also reveal the character of the one who's acting, and they give us several reasons to trust that he is dependable. Let me give you the first one. The Lord God personally and intimately made us. Personally and intimately made us. In verse 7, we're told the Lord God formed the man from the dust and then breathed the life, uh, life into his nostrils. The picture here is one of our covenant creator, being up close and personal in the formation of mankind. Unlike the rest of creation that he speaks into existence, right? His words come out of his mouth and things happen. He forms the earth and he fills the earth by the power of his word. But when it comes to man, he's not using the words of his mouth, but the work of his hands. 
as he digs them into the dust and forms the man personally and intimately involved in the crowning achievement of his creation. And then he gives humanity the breath of life and we're told that the man becomes a living creature. He's alive in the image of God. God personally and intimately involved with him. Second, the Lord prepared a delightful place for him. In verse 8, we see that our covenant creator planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man in it. Now, the garden's name was not Eden. Eden was a geographic location in which the garden was, okay? But he planted a garden in Eden. The word Eden means delightful. It means delightful. Right, and as you read through the rest of the story, right, and, and, and he says that, that Eden was in the east, the garden was there, this delightful place in the east, in the east in the ancient mindset, that in, in the east was a, a place of life and a place of blessing. So if you, if you go along, the, like for instance in the ancient cultures, if you travel along the Nile River, right, on the eastern banks of the Nile, you have all the gods of fertility and the gods of life and blessing. On the western side of the Nile, you have the pyramids and tombs of death. So the east was a place of life and blessing, a delightful place there in Eden where God had carved out a place for the man. Now, most scholars believe this was located somewhere in Mesopotamia or modern-day Iraq. But in verses 10 to 14, Moses goes on a digression to further describe the, just the delightfulness of Eden. Listen to what he says. First, he says there's a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Now, most scholars believe this was a subterranean river that rose up, that what Moses is describing is this river that rises up, flows to the garden to water it, and then at the garden breaks into four branches or other rivers. Now, two of these rivers, the, the most responsible scholars will admit, we have no idea where they are, okay? Right? We know where the Tigris and Euphrates historically were, but the, the Pishon and the Gihon, we don't really know where they are. But the most responsible scholars said they were probably somewhere around the Persian Gulf. But he says, one river flows around the entire land of Havala where there is good gold. Not fool's gold, but good gold. Right? And there's also bdellium, which is possibly pearl, and there's onyx stones there as well. And then he names three, uh, the three other rivers that flowed around Cush, and then the land of Assyria, and then the Euphrates. Now the main point of all this discussion about the rivers, I believe, is this, that in the ancient world, rivers were, flowing rivers in particular, were sources of life. They brought life to places. And so here's what God is saying. Here's what we see in the text as Moses writes. From this delightful place called Eden that God had carved out and planted a garden in, a river arises from that place bringing life to the garden and then splits from there bringing life to the rest of the ancient Near East. Bringing life and blessing from this delightful place. So the Lord God personally, intimately formed man. He prepared a delightful place for man. Third, the Lord God made the garden both beautiful and beneficial for the man. In verse 9, we're told that in this garden, our covenant creator caused all kinds of trees to spring up that were both pleasant to the sight and good for food. Both and. Right? They were both beautiful and beneficial. They provided all of man's needs. They sustained all of his appetites. 
right? A variety of different types of trees to eat from so you didn't have to have the same meal every day. You could eat from this tree this day and this tree this day and this tree this meal and this tree the next meal. So all of man's appetites could be fully satisfied and his body could be fully nourished by what God had provided that was beneficial. But listen, he says they were also pleasing to the eyes. They were beautiful, all of these trees that God had established. Listen, they triggered a response in the reward and pleasure center of the brain that was delightful to the man as he saw these things. If you think about all the beautiful works of God across the face of the globe, right, that whenever we lay eyes on them, it's something that's triggered that God has designed in us to stand back in awe of the majestic mountain peaks as they arise thousands and thousands of feet above sea level, or the deep, luscious rainforest with all types of species that are populating the branches of the trees and are populating the underbrush and the leaves of the ground. You think about all the works of God's creation there in the garden you had this beauty that was unsurpassed and you had all the benefits that man could possibly ever need fourth the Lord God established purpose for man in verse 15 we're told that our covenant creator takes the man and he puts him in the garden to do two things to work it and to keep it that word work it literally describes cultivation. And keeping literally describes protection. So the man was to cultivate and protect the garden, to work and to keep it. First, Adam was to cultivate and tend the garden. His presence there was to be a blessing on the land as he caused the garden to flourish under his watchful and attentive care. The Lord God gives the man a divinely ordained purpose called work. As a gift, not as a punishment. See, working the land was not the punishment for sin. The the thorns and the sweat of the brow and the intense labor and the hardness of the labor was the punishment for sin, not work itself. God gives man purpose. See, last week we saw that God rests from all his work in creation as a pattern for our resting from our work of creation and productivity and cultivation. But God only rests on the seventh day after six days of work forming and filling the earth. And so we pattern our lives after God not only by resting but also by working. By putting our hands to the plow and cultivating and creating and being productive the other six days. You see, Adam's not just sitting in the garden, right, scratching his head going, what am I going to do with all my time? That's not how it's going down there, right? Adam's not sitting around complaining about being bored. Tell my kids sometimes during the summer, if I hear, I'm so bored, one more time, right? Adam's not going, man, I don't have any Wi-Fi, so I can't connect to YouTube and watch videos or check my Facebook feed or my social, my Instagrams, right? I can't do any of that. I know I sound old when I say Instagrams. That's not how the kids say it these days, okay? I can't, I, I, I don't have access to any of those things. See, we were not made for entertainment, church. Listen, students, you were not made to be entertained in life. 
You were made to enjoy God and fulfill the purpose he's given you by putting your hands to labor and work and rest and labor and work and rest. And so whenever you say, I'm so bored, that's a byproduct of you believing a cultural lie that tells you you are made to be entertained. I could say more, but I think I've said enough. Second Adam was to protect and guard the garden. See, the latter term, one commentator, Bruce Walk, he said, the latter term entails guarding the garden against Satan's encroachment, which they, Adam and Eve should have done. He says, as the priests and guardians of the garden, they should have driven out the serpent. Instead, the serpent drives them out. Complete reversal of what they were intended to do, to guard and to keep and protect that which had been cultivated, created, and produced. And God says to the man, I've given you purpose to cultivate and to protect, to work and to keep both and. And then fifth and finally, the Lord God gave freely and generously to the man. See, before you have to see this, church, before God's word to Adam, to the man, was restrictive, it was first permissive. It was first permissive. In verse 16, we see that God commanded the man to eat his fill of the trees of the garden. He says, you lay eyes on it, you can eat it. Before God ever says, you may not, he says, surely you may. Now, to be clear, he does say, you may not. But before you may not ever enters the scene, he says, look at everything that you've been given. Look at everything that out of my grace I've provided. Look at everything that I've ordained and organized for you. Look at everything that would fascinate your mind, that would entrance your eyes, that could fill your belly. Look at it all and enjoy it. But there's one thing that he sets out of bounds. And yet, and yet, and particularly in a fallen world, particularly in a fallen world, the focus of every human heart after the fall is not you may, but is you may not. That's the focus of every human heart, apart from God's saving grace. In the beginning and in every generation, the grace of God says you may before it says you may not. Think about all the things that God has given us to enjoy. All the things. Right? He's given us all good gifts, as James says. Right? That every good and perfect gift comes from where? comes from you, doesn't come from you, that every good and perfect gift comes from the tempter, it doesn't come from the tempter, that every good and gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no change, no shifting of shadows. Like when the sun rises, the shadow is casting this way, and when the sun sets, the shadow is casting this way. That's the purpose of that image. James is saying, God doesn't change like the shadow shifts. But he remains constant throughout every generation and every age. 
so that every good and perfect gift comes from his hands for you and I to enjoy. But listen, the default mode of our hearts, like it was in the garden for our first parents when the tempter came in and said, did God really say, is not, you may enjoy all the trees, but it's, you may not enjoy this one. And yet God graciously and freely and generously gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. Church, the actions of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the covenant creator, were to design a beautiful, luscious, life-sustaining, delightful garden where the man whom he had personally and intimately formed and given life to could flourish. And all of this stands in stark contrast to every other deity in the ancient world. Every other deity in the ancient world was indeed cruel, malevolent, selfish, and callous, oftentimes creating humanity for their own entertainment or to enslave them for their own sadistic purposes. But this was not the character of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. His character was revealed by what and how he creates. Rather than being cruel, he is kind. Rather than being greedy, he is generous. Rather than being malevolent, he is benevolent. Rather than being selfish, he is selfless. Rather than being callous, he is caring and mindful and seeking to bless and fill humanity's life with fullness and purpose. This God is dependable, church. He's dependable. So how do we live in dependence on him? My second and final point this morning. We have to learn to trust his word above all others. Above all others. In verse 17, we see that the Lord God does issue a prohibition to the man. He tells Adam, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The one who has blessed them with everything warns the man not to eat of the one tree. And the reason is that when he does, he will surely die. He'll be cut off and separated from God. See, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, church, listen. It is not a benign thing. But once taken, it's a malignant one. And that the tree, listen, as commentators will say, represented humanity's attempt to build a moral and ethical framework for life apart from God. Listen to two of them. Kent Hughes said it this way, the temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to seek wisdom without reference to the word of God. It was an act of moral autonomy, deciding what is right without reference to God's revealed will. He says this is confirmed by Ezekiel 28, the closest parallel to Genesis 2 and 3, which tells us how the king of Tyre was expelled from Eden for his pride and for claiming that his heart was like the heart of a god. Our first parents desired wisdom, he says, but they sought it outside of the word and will of God. They usurped God's role in determining what is right and wrong. So here we get to the very heart of 
original sin. It was to sidestep God and his word and his will. of our own destruction, of our own destruction. Another commentator, Bruce Waltke said, sin consists of an illicit reach of unbelief, an assertion of human autonomy to know morality apart from God. The creature must live by faith in God's word, not by self, or, or professed self-sufficiency of knowledge. See, the tree represented humanity's attempt to establish this moral framework and ethical foundation for life apart from a right orientation to our covenant creator and trust in his revealed will and his clear word. So to live in dependence upon God looks like trusting his word above all others, including my own. As our covenant creator, because he knows the design specs of humanity and his heart is for us. It's for us. Let me see if I can illustrate it to you this way. Listen, every piece of technology that you buy, whenever you go to Best Buy or you go to uh, Amazon or you go to whatever uh, place you're ordering technology from, every piece of technology that you purchase comes with factory default settings. Right? Things that the manufacturer knows will allow that particular piece of technology to function at its highest levels of efficiency across multiple platforms and, 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 and operations. So they've built some of these things into the system, the operating system of the piece of technology. Now, you can change those settings, but whenever you do, whenever you do change those settings, you run the risk of not only losing efficiency with regards to that piece of technology, but you also run the risk of opening that yourself up to uh, all kinds of, of bugs in the system, because you remove the protections the manufacturer has embedded and built into the piece of technology. In addition, whenever that technology breaks, listen, there are manufacturer-authorized service centers that you can bring it to. Whenever you bring it to the manufacturer-authorized service center, the repair center, right? oftentimes it comes with a warranty on the basis of the repair. But whenever you bring it to a non-manufacturer-certified center, what happens is all kinds of things can go wrong. You run the risk of the settings being jacked up in a way that slows the device down, disables it, or destroys it altogether. I can remember, listen, having an iPhone at one point. And as inevitably iPhones go and every other piece of pocketable technology, I dropped it. And when I dropped it, guess what happened to the screen? Right? It, it, it broke. And he had all these little spiderweb cracks running through the screen. And so it got so bad at one point that as I swiped my finger over the screen, I could just, I, it didn't cut me, but I could feel the ridges at times of that tempered glass. Okay? And so I decided I need, I need to get the screen fixed. And so I decided to take it to a repair shop here locally that will remain nameless. Okay? Um, I'm not out to give anybody a bad review, but I brought it to that repair shop. Now, that was a non-Apple authorized, manuf- non-manufacturer authorized repair center. 
And I said, yeah, we do screen replacements. And so I said, they were the cheapest deal in town. So I thought, hey, I'm going to take it there. So they did, they did a screen replacement. They called me, said it's ready to come pick up. So I went and picked it up. And I, I looked at the screen first and foremost. And all of a sudden, I noticed the screen was darker than it was whenever uh, I, I had the screen that came from Apple. Okay, um, And so I was like, man, i got to turn the brightness way up. And even then, it doesn't get quite as bright as it used to be. Okay? And then I noticed over the course of time, like sometimes it would just glitch, get real glitchy on me. Okay? So sometimes people would say, hey, I, I tried texting you, but leave me a voicemail and I'd get it like five days later. Okay? And so I'm like, what is going on with the phone? And I could trace it all back to me taking that device to a place to be serviced for something that was disabled or broken in it to a place that obviously didn't know what they were doing fully as they worked on to repair the device. And so when I got it back, it came back with less capacity and efficiency than I sent it in with. And all I'm trying to tell you this morning, church, is this, is that there are manufactured, manufactured design settings for your soul that only God knows, that only He knows. And you can't take your life someplace else to be fixed. You have to bring it to Him. That's why he says to Adam, trust me with the tree. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you can figure it out for yourself. But bring your life to me. Trust me. See, from the temptation for humanity, from our first parents to your parents to you, Right? For every single one of us is to seek to determine what our setting should be on our own. You want case in point? Go read the Old Testament book of Judges. Over and over and over and over, we're told that the kings and the people following their example, they did what was right in their own eyes. Right? Because there was no king in the land. And that caused all kinds of problems for the people, right? They ended up being overrun and overthrown and oppressed. And so they did what was right in their own eyes. They experienced discipline and judgment from God. They cried out to God in repentance and saying, save us, raise up someone to deliver us. And God, out of his grace and mercy, would. And he would send a judge to deliver them. And as soon as they were delivered, they repeated the pattern again, the next generation, and again, and again, and again, over and over and over and over. And I believe one of the reasons that story was preserved and recorded for us by God's Spirit is to teach us that that pattern is often the pattern of our own lives. Of doing what is right in our own eyes. Determining for ourselves what our own settings should be. Trying to establish a moral and ethical framework and foundation apart from God's clear word and His revealed will and knowing that He knows every setting for your soul and His heart is for you, not against you. God is saying, trust me with your settings. Trust me when I say that forgiveness is better than bitterness for your soul. Trust me when I say that living under control and under authority as you submit yourself to my word is better than living in control of yourself or out of control under the control of someone else. 
trust me when I say it's better. Trust me whenever I say that kindness is better than cruelty. Whenever I say that generosity is better than greed. Whenever I say that service and sacrifice is better than selfishness and self-centeredness. Trust me whenever I say that purity is better than pornography and promiscuity. It's better. It's better. It's better because I know your settings. And he's saying, trust me with the tree. Let me ask you, church, what are the trees in your life that you need to trust God with? Where is it that you need to say today, God, I acknowledge that you know you intimately and personally formed me in my mother's womb, as David would say in the Psalms. And you know the manufacturer default settings which will allow me to flourish But God, I have been looking to another tree to find for myself what I believe to be wise and right. Where is it that you need to turn? What tree do you need to trust God with? He's dependable, church. Trust him with his his word above all others, including your own. Let me give you one final reason to depend upon him. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author says that God has spoken to us in many times and in many ways. In the Old Testament, he spoke through prophets. In the Old Testament, he spoke through donkeys. God, he's spoken many times and in many ways. He says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his one and only son. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, will call Jesus Christ the last Adam. This one whom God has spoken to us by in the last days. See, God put the first Adam in a garden, and he filled it with everything that he could possibly need and all his heart could desire. And he said to the first Adam, trust me with the tree. And the first Adam, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, and as you probably already know, many of you failed the test. The first Adam would end up seeking moral autonomy and aim to be wise in his own eyes without respect to God's commands. So he didn't trust God with the tree. But the last Adam would say in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, whenever he's tempted to turn rocks into bread, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus, the last Adam, would take God at his word, every word that he spoke. He would trust him. God put the last Adam in a garden as well, where he prays all night and his closest friends are not able to watch him pray with him. They abandon him in his hour of greatest need and he's sweating drops of blood. That's a very different description than Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. About this delightful place filled with beauty and all the things that man needed to flourish. Here Jesus is in a garden abandoned by his closest friends, sweating drops of blood and crying out to the Father. If there's any other way, God, that we can accomplish the redemption of humanity, let this cup of your wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That, those gardens are very different places. But God put the last Adam, the second Adam in the garden. He said, trust me with the tree. 
And the last Adam did. He trusted his father with the tree, only this time it was an oddly shaped tree. It was a tree that was severed from its roots and turned into a vertical style and a horizontal beam that was set up on a hill. And when Jesus says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you do, he was trusting his father with the tree. And as he went to the cross, church, through his work there, you see that God's heart is clearly for you. Clearly for you. And that he can be trusted because he who did not withhold his only son, the son whom he loved, how could we not trust that his heart is for us and that he can be trusted with all of our other settings? He's dependable. His character shows it. Trust his word above all others, including your own. And look to the one who trusted him in our place when we were not able to. It'll give you great confidence to know he's for you and he's with you. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, I know my own heart well enough to know that there have been many occasions in my own life where I did what was right in my own eyes. And I have suffered consequences. People close to me have suffered consequences. It's brought about pain. So as we look at the lens, through through the lens of a pre-fall world, where sin had not yet ruptured the harmony that man shared with you, may we see in that world a picture of the world that is to come. And may we see in that world your character so fully revealed so that as we think on and rejoice in all that you did in the East to bring life and blessing and establish a world in which humanity could flourish, may we never doubt that your heart is for us. And as we look at the cross, may we be clearly reminded once again that your heart is for us. So Father, help us to trust you with the trees in our life. to trust your word above all others, including our own. To believe that what you say is better than what we may feel on a given day. And we would submit our lives to that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.